Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Paul to the Ephesians. Specifically, we're going to be in chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. In the early 20th century, there is a, a story of a man who bought a Model T Ford. And the Model T Ford was running great, and then one day he was driving it down the road, and it just, it, it suddenly, it, it killed. He, he gets out of the car and he pops open the hood and he's, he's tinkering with all the stuff on the inside. He's trying to figure it out. He's, he's pulling this out, plugging it back in and it seems like absolutely nothing he can do can get this car to work. It's hot out. He's dirty. He's greasy. He's frustrated. And, and this guy just no longer knows what to do. He, he's just beside himself. And, and there was another car that ended up pulling up. It looked like a little bit more of a wealthy car. And as it, it pulled over, a chauffeur gets out of the car and opens up the door and a well-dressed man comes out and he takes off his sport coat and he unbuttons his sleeves and he, he rolls them up and, and he approaches the guy and without even so much a greeting, he says, what's wrong with the car? And the man says, well, I... I I, I don't know. I mean, I've tried everything I know, and I cannot get this car to work. And so the second man said to him, well, sir, why don't you just get back in your car, and I'll try to figure it out. And the man said, why? I've tried everything I possibly can. There's nothing else I can, I can do. Said, no, 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 no. Just, just go sit down, and we'll see what happens. So the man sits in his car, and, and the other man is working under the hood. Not even five minutes later, the guy cranks the thing up, and, and the engine starts up, and the car's working again. And the guy walks away. He unrolls his sleeves. He starts buttoning them up again, puts on a sport coat, and the chauffeur opens the door. And the man from the Model T says, whoa, hold on, hold on. Who are you? How, how did you even do that? The man turned around and said, well, sir, my name is Henry Ford, and I built that car, and I know everything that there is possibly to know about that car. And so they both got into their respective cars and, and drove away. You know, for this man, he tried desperately to solve this problem on his own. And he could not. He had no ability. He had no resources. He lacked the knowledge that he needed to get him out of this, this predicament. What he did have, however was a desperate need. For Henry Ford, Henry Ford had the knowledge, he had the power, he had the, the ability to help this man out when he desperately needed it. And he showed up at just the right time, at just the right moment, and he helped this man and came through. You know, for many of us, this sums up what our walk in the Christian life is like. We think that we can do it ourselves. We think that we can do it in our own way. We think that we can do it in our own power. And time and time again, we learn the same lesson over and over and over. And that lesson is that we are weak and we desperately need help. But fortunately for you and for me, help is available. And in our text this morning, Paul teaches us 
to get back in the car and let God do the work of fixing us up and getting us where he has called us to. So if you have your Bibles with you, please read along with me in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, of whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want this to be about you. We want to come back to the heart of worship and know that this is all about Jesus. And so, Father, would you help us to just get back in the car and let God work? God, would we look to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could not only ask, but also think? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. We are weak and we are needy. And if we want to experience true power, the power of God in our lives, we need to, we need to get back in that car. And we need to let God do what only God can do. And Paul struck, instructs us through this, this simple prayer, three ways uh, that, that involve this. And the first is, is that we first need to know who, who we're praying to. We need to know who we're praying to. This may seem like a trivial point, but it's very important that in prayer and in the Christian life that we understand God rightly. We must understand that this is a God who is far superior to us. Look in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. You know, this is an obvious expression of prayer that, that many of us are familiar with because so many of us learned as children to go on our knees at night and pray to our Heavenly Father. And that's normal to us. We get that. But for a Jew, this is totally something out of left field. A Jew would not normally use kneeling as a prayer posture. A typical prayer of a Jew is to stand up. And if you were to go to Israel right now and go to the Wailing Wall where a lot of the Orthodox Jews are praying constantly at, you would not see them on their knees at the wall. Rather, you would see them with their scripture open and their eyes closed and them rocking back and forth because that is a typical prayer posture for a Jew. For a Jew to get on his knees and pray showed a significant amount of weakness 
on the part of the person who was, who was praying. But yet, when we understand God rightly, praying on our knees makes total sense. Because here's a God that is completely transcendent, and that's a really big word, but it means that God is much bigger than any of us can even get our, our minds around. He is greater than anything that is, was, or could be. That he is so unlike us. He is completely independent of anything in order to exist. He's dependent only on himself. He needs nothing. He doesn't need to eat his Wheaties in the morning. He doesn't need to exercise every day to stay in shape. And scripture tells us that God doesn't even need sleep. He is completely self-sufficient in himself. And Paul bows his knees due to this transcendence and his holiness. God's not like us. God is set apart. God is holy. He is clean from sin. He is morally pure and good. He never makes mistakes. He is God. But not only that, but we pray to the one who cares. The one who cares. Look again in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Let's camp out right there for just a second. Not only is he holy, not only is he transcendent, not only is he, he bigger than our minds can think of, but he's also what theologians call imminent. He is near to us. He is close to us. He draws to us in a relational sense. He is intricately involved in every single aspect of our lives. And he cares about the minute by minute by minute things that you and I go through on a daily basis. When we are tempted to have anxiety about things, when we're tempted to see how is God going to prepare, uh, how, how is he going to provide for us, we, we need not look further than the Gospels. When Jesus said that if God cares for the birds of the air, how much more will he not care for us? He loves us. There, he is a God who is near to us. And the Bible describes this sentiment as him being one like a father. But here's the thing. The fatherhood of God is exemplary in two equally opposite ways. The first way is that God shows himself to be the model father. Let's be honest. Some of us here this morning have had fathers that have not been good fathers. Whether there's abuse or hurt or neglect or shame or whatever it is, some of us have experienced that. And it's difficult for you then when the Bible calls God a father to see him as good because the only example you've ever seen of a father is of one that is not good. But yet, the example of God as father is meant to show us who have not had a good father what a good father is like. The one who's going to show up whenever he needs to. The one who's always going to come through. The one who is always going to, to be there for us. 
one who never walks away. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some of us that have grown up with really good fathers. We've seen that example. And, and when they see uh, their fathers and they know that the scripture says that, that God is a father that's even better than the one that they had, it's easy to follow and say, God must be great because my dad was great. Paul, following an example of our Lord Jesus, instructs us to pray to God as Father, as our Father who cares, as little children who are helpless and needy, yet confident in knowing that their Father cares, He protects, He acts, and He shows up. We pray to the transcendent yet imminent God who relates to us as a perfect father. So we need to know who it is that we are praying to. But second of all, we need to know what to pray for. We need to know what to pray for. You know, I've been a Christian for a little over 16 years now. And one thing that I've noticed is that um, Paul... Paul prays differently than we do. His prayers have a different sort of substance, a different sort of focus. Think about the, the kinds of things that we pray for. Not that they're, that they're bad, uh, they're, they're very good things to pray for, but look at how Paul prays. First, he prays to str- that God would strengthen our lives with his power. That God would strengthen our lives with his power. God is so big, he is so majestic, he's transcendent, he's imminent. But in all those things, it is all encompassed in the fact that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. And nobody can stop him from doing those very things. He has the authority and the ability to carry out whatever his sovereign plan has called him to do. And we forget, typically, that God is so big and able and that he is willing to do that. And, and we, we oftentimes settle for these little prayers instead of praying big things because we do one of two things. Either... We um, develop spiritual amnesia, which means we just forget that God is big and that he cares and that he's loving and that he's able. So we don't ask him for these big things. We just settle for these little day-by-day things. Or second of all, we simply don't believe that God is able. There's only one of two things. We forget or we don't believe. We read all the stories in the Old Testament about God splitting rivers in two. The people of Israel walking on dry land through it. We read stories of people being raised from the dead. We read read stories of, of a man being swallowed by a fish for three days and coming out alive. We read stories about 300 men taking on some of the greatest armies in the world and winning 
And we look at those stories and we affirm them and say, yes, those are historically accurate. We believe those actually happened. But yet many of us settle with asking God to help us just to get through our day. God, would you just help me just get through the next five minutes, through the next hour? We read those and we affirm those, but when it comes to the getting up at six, going to work, coming home at five, putting supper on the table, putting the kids to bed, going to bed yourself, and then the very next day, doing it all over again, we believe that God only works in those tiny moments. But when it comes to the big things, we don't want to bother God. So, though most of us affirm his, his omnipotence, his all-powerful being. Um, when, when push comes to shove, many of us simply don't believe and we just don't trust it. In this case, we look to do the big things of life on our own. And we wonder why we don't see God doing, we don't see God's power in our lives and in our churches. We wonder why we don't see peace in our homes. We're wondering why we're not seeing our lives change the way that they should. Paul tells us that we need to pray for God's power in our lives. But look also with me at verse 18. He tells us that we need also to see the extent of God's power so we've seen that he's got it, but look at, look at the extent in verse 18. Paul says, what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth of his power? Now, some of us might be saying, well, what is he talking about? I thought he's talking about height, depth, breadth, and all, all this stuff is love. It's very ambiguous what he's talking about here, and I think it's connected to his power. This is one of the only times in the Bible that God is shown a, in, in four dimensions. See, you and I, we only tend to think of three dimensions. But yet, this third dimension is completely incomprehensible. We can't get our minds around it. Clinton Arnold acknowledges that Paul regards God's power as the fundamental part of the Christian life. So why would knowledge of God's power be fundamental to the Christian life? It's because Satan is really good at keeping us spiritually weak by helping us misplace where true power lies. He wants us to think that it's here in you and in me. We need the power of God in our lives. We need to admit our weakness. We need to resist the evil one. We need the power of God to shed our sinful tendencies and sinful patterns that we have that keep coming back and back. We need the power of God for healing in our churches. And it can only come through His power. The second thing that we need to pray for is to pray that God would show us the extent and security of his love in Christ. 
the extent and security of his love in Christ. God is not only powerful, as we saw in his fatherhood, but he's also immensely loving. If we were to do a survey of the letter of Ephesians, we'd see in chapter 1 that Paul says that God loved us before the foundation of the world. Now think about that. Before you ever existed, before you were in anybody's mind, you were in God's mind before any pebble ever happened on earth. Before the foundation was placed, you were on God's heart. In verse 5 of chapter 1, God loved us so much that he adopted us as sons and daughters. And if we were to continue going through the letter of Ephesians, we would see that you and I were in complete rebellion against God doing the very things that his loving character and his loving kindness did not want us to do, showing ourselves to be against him and and, and not for him. But yet, in his great love, he overturned our spiritual deadness against him and made us alive with Christ. That is amazing love. God has this incomprehensible love for us and it is found in what he has done in Christ Jesus. So Paul prays that we'd understand this love and now paradoxically he, he, he connects it so that he would pray that we would understand this love that is not understandable. That we would grasp this incomprehensible Love. Look in verse 19. And for us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God, Paul here is asking for God to do the impossible. For us to know and to experience what is beyond us. This is a big prayer. He's asking us Uh, Well, he's asking us in the Ephesians, and the Ephesians especially did not understand this kind of love. To understand where the Ephesians were at this place, the Ephesians were a superstitious bunch that before they came to know Christ, they were deep into paganism, and they assumed that they could just appease whatever God they were praying to. So if they would go to the goddess of Artemis, if they had enough money, if they could say the right words, if they could appease the goddess in some sort of way, then maybe just maybe the goddess would have favor on them and therefore they could live productive lives. It was about outwitting the God they were serving. But here's the deal. If someone else came with more money, better things to say, better magical knowledge to appease the gods, it wouldn't matter what you prayed. It wouldn't matter what you said or what you gave. The gods would be against them. So they never knew a God of love that would not demand what, what, what he gets from them. They never knew a God that gave everything that he had in order for them to be with him. So they found hope and peace in the gospel of Christ. And for us today to discover that the God of the universe, the God that is upholding Everything that happens here as well as beyond in, beyond the Milky Way 
is beyond us. Because you and I have never met anyone that loves that perfectly. You maybe had a great father. You maybe may have an amazing spouse. But their love is incomplete compared to the love of God. And love in our day is so veiled in self-centeredness. So many of us would say, well, why do we love this person? Well, I love this person because of how they make me feel. Well, who's the focus on on that one? It's on me. We have such a self-centered focus of love that we do what we can in order to receive self-satisfaction for loving someone else. And I'm convinced that why a lot of people don't come to know this great God of love is, is because they don't believe it because it is too good to be true. They've never seen anything like this. And so it can't possibly be true. This is the kind of love that roots itself in stability when our lives are in chaos. This is a love that takes our mourning and replaces it with joy. This is a love that not only accepts you for who you are, warts and all, but loves you so much that he, that he doesn't want to keep you there. He loves you for who you are, but loves you too much to keep you where you are. What other love do you know that is like that? And notice in verse 17 how Paul grounds this understanding. He asks that God would help us to be rooted and grounded in love. Understand the two metaphors that he, he gives here are, are quite astonishing. First, he, he wants that our love would be rooted like that of a tree. When you look at a tree that is well-rooted, that is well-grounded, it is a tree that can withstand an awful lot. It's a tree that can withstand wind. It is a tree that can withstand hail. It is a tree that can withstand rain and flood and drought. It's stable and it's secure. When you're grounded in love, you can not only withstand the storms of life, but you can also have a lot of patience and a lot of grace with others who don't agree with you. You can overlook a lot of wrongs. You can take some hits and sidestep your desires for the betterment of someone else or other people. He not only prays that our love would be rooted and grounded like a tree, but also he, he grounds it uh, in the, as like a foundation of a house. Love is to be the foundation by which you and I stand. If you and I are founded and, and, and grounded in love, we can hold a lot of weight on top of us. We can bear one another's burdens. We can stand strong in stability. We can collectively, uh, as, uh, collectively as a church and as individuals, we can take a lot of weight if we are grounded and rooted in love. What would our lives look like if we were rooted and grounded in love? Let's be honest. 
what would Emmanuel Baptist Church look like if we were rooted and grounded in love? What would our ministry look like? What would our outreach look like? What would our business meetings look like? This place would be totally transformed if we prayed diligently for this and worked hard to do it. So whether it's being strengthened with power or understanding the depths of God's love or rooting ourselves in love, there's a lot to pray for. Why? Because our need is so big. Our need is big, but thankfully we have a big God who desires to hear our prayer. And not only that, he will act on those prayers, which naturally leads to our third point, is to know why to pray. Know why to pray. Verses 20 through 21 gives us two good reasons to pray. The first is because of God's ability. And the second is because of God's glory. So let's break those up a little bit. Um, In verse 20, Paul says, to him who is able. So let's push pause there for just a second because as what we've said before, Paul here gives evidence on why to pray. It's because God is able. He is able. The Greek word here is a derivative of the word for power. God can do it. He has the ability, he has the authority, he has the power to come through on these kinds of prayers that we, that we pray. But he doesn't stop there. Notice that Paul lets us know that there's no border, there's no fence, there's no limit to God's ability to do the unthinkable here. Notice what he says. He says that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask or can even Think to ask. Now, I, 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 I'm not a language expert, but I don't know what it even means to do something far more abundantly. There's too many, I don't know if the right word is superlative or not, but there's too many of those lees there that is just hard for me to get my mind around that God is that great. This is to say that God is limitless power. He doesn't fit into any box that we make for him. He can do whatever it is that we ask in accordance with his ways and even beyond that. He can meet your request and do more than your mind ever wants to even think of asking. Finally, we pray because of God's glory. Look in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and through Jesus Christ throughout all generations. God is at work in our hearts. He's at work in our lives. He's enabling us. He is sustaining us. But ironically, it's not about us. It's about God. It is about God bringing himself glory. Notice Paul's doxology, how it does not begin. Notice he does not say, now to you who are needy. Who does he address? 
to God who is able. God is all these great things, but he is not these great things just to serve us. He does these things because it's part of his character. It's who he is. And it points back to his greatness. And you and I just happen to be the beneficiaries. And what a great benefit that is. So God gets the glory in us and in the church by working in our lives to display his goodness in the church, in Christ. So why do we pray? We pray because he's able and because he is glorious. Lake Tahoe is the eighth deepest lake in the world. And on July 4th, 1875, two men discovered the deepest point in the lake to be 1,645 feet by lowering a weighted champagne bottle uh, on a fishing line from the side of their boat. Following the invention of the sonar radar, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirmed that depth. Lake Tahoe is so large that if you were to tip it over on its side, its contents would cover California in 14.5 inches of water. Lake Tahoe could provide every person in the United States of America with 50 gallons of water per day for five years. That's a lot of water. The evaporation from Tahoe over the course of one year could supply a city the size of Los Angeles for five years. And Lake Tahoe is comparatively smaller than Lake Superior just north of here, which is 120 times as large as Lake Tahoe. And it is far more um, inferior to the world's largest lake, which is the Caspian Sea, which is 576 times as large as Lake Tahoe. But as large as Lake Tahoe is, Lake Tahoe has its limits. With irresponsible, um, uh, with irresponsible use, the lake could dry up, and just become a, a huge crater in the ground. But God, God is an inexhaustible spring for the thirsty soul. Whatever you need, you can never exhaust His power. You can never exhaust His resources. And get this, you can never exhaust His desire to minister to you and come on your behalf. Go to him today. Pour out your heart and he can and will do far more abundantly than you could ever think or ask. Let's pray. Father, we look to you as needy people who have nothing in and of themselves to offer. We may be successful to a certain point, but Lord, we, we desperately need you. 
And so, Father, now I pray that you would sense, uh, that you would give in us a sense of our neediness, that you would uh, draw near to us in that. Lord, and that we would join Paul here in this doxology, this praise, that to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So, Father, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask the, uh, those of you who are designated to help with uh, communion to please uh, come forward at this time. I had the unique opportunity this last week to go to a class at a Lutheran church here in town and teach them what we believe about the Lord's Supper and about baptism. And it was a refreshing experience to, for me uh, to remember why we come together every month and celebrate this Lord's Supper. There's nothing magical about what we're about to do. The, these, these things and these dishes here, they're still just grape juice, still just crackers. They don't change. But they show us a visual representation of, of a reality that's happened for us. They show us that you and I are weak and needy that we have things in our lives that need to be worked out, need to be redeemed, and they have been in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we come together every month and we eat these crackers and we drink this juice to remind ourselves of a body that was broken and blood that was shed on our behalf. So who is this, who is this, uh, this time for? This time is for those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say that you put your trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, that one day you will be with him in glory and for him to redeem you from all sin. This is for those of you wherever you are, you are from and believe in Jesus. It does not matter if you're a Lutheran. It does not matter if you're from a different church. As long as you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are invited this morning to take of these elements. If that's not you today, that's not a shameful thing. That's not an embarrassing thing. We want to ask that you would let it pass over that you, that you would pass it by, but that you would look at the elements at least. That you would see that these are tangible repre representations. That someone died on your behalf. And not just someone off the street, someone who was God himself, with all the riches of heaven, came down and put those things aside for you and for me. This was originally an, uh, instituted on Jesus' final night. And before he... Uh, uh, he gave bread and, um, and broke it. He prayed, which we're going to do here in a second. But uh, for those of you that are new, we pass out both the elements. First, the, the crackers come out. You hold on to that, please, until, until the end. The juice will come out, and we will take them all together. We'll take the bread in silence, and then um, when, the, when the juice is passed out, that will be with a song for us to remember as well. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks which we ought to follow suit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, would, would you help us to remember? Remember your life. Remember your death. But more importantly, remember your resurrection. Lord, that you were raised from the power of God to the newness of life by which we will join you one day. Thank you, Lord, for providing victory on our behalf. And let us celebrate this with joy, not in mourning, 
knowing that our redemption is complete in Jesus Christ alone. And it's in his name that I ask. Amen.
1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And everyone agreed, that agreed with that said, Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would cling to the cross, that all of our days, all of our thoughts, all of our inclinations would be to please you and to serve you. Father, uh, from here, uh, not just uh, this afternoon, but in all of our days, would you help us to experience you and your power, to give you great glory for our good, and that Christ would be magnified in all things. Amen. Stick around. We'll be starting the meeting here, I think, just momentarily. Well, I'm going to get.